Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. China's legislative body, the National People's Congress, started its annual 10-day meeting on March 5th. It's not really a legislative body as we know it, but it does reveal some of the concerns of the Politburo and the Chinese leadership. With me is writer Wen Huang. He is the author of The Little Red Guard and A Death in the Lucky Holiday Hotel. Good to see you again, Wen. Good to see you, Jerome. Now, when you were nice enough to stay up late and watch a little bit of the the Congress for us, um, what's going on there? First, we, we you mentioned that uh, this week is the National People's Congress. It's like our, our Congress here, the legislative body, but we call it two sessions in China because. Uh, Two conferences are taking place at the same time. The first one is the is about three thousand representatives from all of the uh, country. They gathered in Beijing is for uh, lawmaking. But another body was they call the political consultative conference. These are the people who are the celebrities or the. Um, uh, CEOs of big companies, and in this country, you invite them to fundraisers. But China, they invite them for a conference, <laughs> as uh, we call the political a political vase or a decorative piece to show that the party is very open minded and popular. Right, they, they, that's they call it a political vase and a rubber stamp. The rubber stamp, of course, is the the Congress. If you watch the Brexit uh, the debate, you see how parliamentary debate is so heated. But in China. All you need to be there is for the the political consultants. They are there. You just smile and then uh, have a party. But the other part is the the delegates. You all you need to say is yes, because a lot of people they openly say, "I am uh, a patriotic Chinese. All I do is to vote yes," and uh, because they don't. Uh, do some stuff, nothing significant, uh, significant. Last night, when I was wa- staying up late to watch anything going on, was these uh, legislators, because they gather in Beijing, they fl- fly them over there, is they have to make some legislation. So they would focus on some very ridiculous or uh, superficial things. For example, la- uh, last night, uh, when I was watching this one legislator, proposed a piece saying that uh, anti-obesity program in China, he recommended that uh, all the government employees need to lose weight very fast. Their waist size, men shouldn't exceed 33 inches, and women shouldn't exceed 35 <laughs> inches. Whoa. If, yeah, if you do that, if you can't accomplish that, they'll send you to a, a anti-obesity center. And soon, if you can't, still can't accomplish that, they'll reduce your salary. So that these legislation immediately ridiculed by the people online. Go ahead. That's very hilarious. I, I can't imagine our Congress being able to get into size 33 pants very often. I know. It's just that uh, <laughs> people say, where is the substantial stuff? And then some people say, school uniform so ugly. But to show the le- nature of the legislature is more for show only. You know, like all uh, the dictators, you know, they don't. They control the legislature. They don't really have any special uh, special impact. Now, one of the interesting things that goes on in China is they get um, worried about things that don't really pop up on our, our radar screen. There are security concerns and anniversaries that seem to go to the highest level there that we never really catch wind of here. Exactly. This year is a very, very, we call the dangerous year for China because uh, first one is the anniversaries. Uh, it's the 60th, 60th anniversary of uh the Dalai Lama escaping to 
India. So Tibet is a big issue. They worried about the massive protests there. It happened March 10th, and uh, they controlled so tightly. And I haven't seen any riots going on there because that happened before. And also, it's Tiananmen Square, the uh, 30th anniversary of uh, the Tiananmen students' protest movement. I was part of it. I can't believe like 30 years have passed. I remember. I was so young. Then. But anyway, and then uh, the 70th uh, anniversary of the funding of the People's Republic of China, the Communist China. And during these major anniversaries, normally people would rally for political purposes. So also Tiananmen Square, 1989, was another anniversary. So the Chinese government is very, very worried. And in the budget this year, you can see that the increased budget for security, or they call uh, maintaining stability, the cost is just uh, going up so fast, sometimes even higher than the defense budget, because internal debate and China this time, they openly opposed to color revolution. They believe that uh, Christianity or the other foreign NGOs are fermenting revolutions in China. So this is their top concern. And also before the Congress and during the Congress, the whole Beijing is under heightened security. All the dissidents who really want to have something to say at the Congress, they move them out, either put them heavy surveillance or take them out on vacation. It's so hard to rate how secure or insecure the Chinese government is feeling at any given time. But it sounds like from what you're saying, they are more insecure than we think, than we view them as. Especially this year, as a, apart from anniversaries, we have the trade war between U.S. and China. And uh, right now, unemployment is huge because China export uh, direct economy and lots of migrant workers who use uh, for these big factories along the coastline of China because of the trade war, the heavy tariffs, a lot of the companies have gone out of business. And the migrant workers, they have returned and the high unemployment rate. And in the Chinese economy, like last year, their target was 7.5. And this year, the government lowered their target to 6. Point. Even these 6. Point pe- people say that uh, they, the, statist- uh, the scientists or whoever in charge of the, ofi- the officials, they cooked up these stats because each year they have a target and the final results always match exactly the target just like uh, George Orwell's 1984 how the government controls production targets and then they always meet the targets but even this year they lower target and in the government report the premier's report they mentioned specifically that we are facing crisis the the economic situation and also because the trade war you know that one of the key issues during the trade war is intellectual property and uh, uh, China's, you know, uh, uh, theft of Huawei incident. Uh, the U.S. accused uh, China of stealing secrets. And China had a program which, which was drummed up last year. It's called Made in China 2025, meaning like by 2025, China wanted to upgrade its uh, technological capabilities and became a bit, will become a major manufacturing center with high-quality China made in China products. But a lot of people have accused them in order to achieve that goal. They steal a lot of the secrets from the West. So this year, because the pressure of the trade wars, they no longer mention that. They not even one mention. But in the in the premier speech, there were thirty-five mentions of crisis or risks. So you could tell that they are facing economically. They are facing a very grave situation. Because for the Communist Party, 
uh, un- higher unemployment rate and bad economy means like it's going to threaten the rule. That's very this is a top concern for them. I'm talking with Wen Huang. He's the author of several books, including The Little Red Guard and A Death in the Lucky Holiday Hotel. We're talking about the National People's Congress, which started on March 5th and runs for 10 days in China and how it shows uh, some of the concerns about what's happening in China. Coming up in a few minutes, we're going to be talking about biodiversity and here and around the world and the decline in insects, butterflies and pollinators and what we can do about it. Um, When, you know, it sounds so different than the news we get about uh, China. If you Google it right now, you know, China's, uh, there's a lot of concern about China's uh, 5G network taking over and stealing secrets from Germany. There's concern about uh, China going out and uh, lending money to everyone in the developed world, and they've got the whole developed world on a string. Um, it, what does it seem like to you? It, uh, what's what's true? Is China taking over the world, or is China so nervous about its own economy it, uh, it it's going to wither into a puddle? I think China is got the whole trade war, and then this whole thing is going to have a deep impact on China. And this year, we are actually hoping to see some heated discussions or some dissent in that. But Chinese, they there are some, there might be some behind the door discussion. But the whole session was talking about superficial things. But people believe that uh, uh, the only thing we can tell from the conference, whether they touch on these very serious topics, was we have to comb through the jargon-filled political speeches or to see the reaction. For example, the premier, when he delivered the speech, he was sweating like 10 times, wiping his forehead 10 times. And then the process was scarce. We we knew that uh, the uh, he mentioned the One Road, One Belt project that China tried to expand its infrastructure all over the world. It's met strong uh, 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 resistance and that part, they he said it was a success. People said there was not enough pluses because people, uh, the uh, Xi Jinping's foreign policy. This is a key part of uh, uh, China's foreign policy is in total bankruptcy because uh, most of the uh, East A- uh, Central Asian countries and the other in African countries they meet a lot of resistance there, local protests, thinking that China is trying to colonize Africa and all these uh, these places. And also because the trade war it has a deep impact on the China's economy, and then IMF has uh, stated explicitly that China's economy is going to be. Uh, slow down significantly, and then China could. The Communist Party, I have to say, they are facing a very serious threat. If they cannot re- resolve these issues, there's going to be a leadership crisis. But Xi Jinping is trying to building building this uh, consolidating power, building this cult of personality. Go does, ahead. Does, does the does the Uyghur issue that we're reading so much about uh, pop up at all at this uh, party congress? Because uh, I imagine if you're pre- having people from all over China, you've got to have some from uh, the areas where the Uyghurs are from. And you would um, – I mean I noticed uh, Mike Pompeo in the Trump administration who doesn't usually say much on human rights did say – that China's in a league of its own on human rights and right because really before this sense. issue, before this issue, the re-education camps that China set up in the Uyghur region got a lot of international attention. So we're watching this very closely. The only thing we got from that is all the Uyghur delegates. They never ha- they didn't carry name tags like other people did. In this way, they could avoid reporters. Reporters couldn't tell whether they were from the Uyghur region. But then the, there was another thing that uh, the uh, one of the the delegates from that region. Now mentioned explicitly that the foreign 
powers the lion because those were not, not re-education camps. They were career training centers, uh, professional centers that train uh, workers, uh, but there's also brainwashing. And they are actually trying to export the model to other regions so that they could control people, pe- put people under control so they don't stage protests against the, uh, the government. That's kind of scary. It is. It's, uh, but everybody hoping they could get something significant out of it. But when the reporters uh, swarmed around, they couldn't find which one's delegates which from the Uyghur region. And they look at it. Everybody else has name tag, but the, these people, they didn't. They refused to talk with the reporters. They walked away very quickly. Wen Huang is the author of The Little Red Guard and A Death in the Lucky Holiday Hotel. Thanks for joining us and talking a bit about uh, the National People's Congress in China. Their 10-day meeting is just about over and staying up late and and watching all that uh, interesting stuff for us. Two more days. Thank you, Jerome. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about protecting biodiversity in this region. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Last fall, the New York Times article, The Insect Apocalypse is Here, caused quite a stir. It detailed research that demonstrates an across-the-board drop in insect populations in places as far apart as Germany and Puerto Rico. Doug Terran is chief curator at the Chicago Academy of Sciences and the Peggy Noderdebert Nature Museum. He's also founder of the Illinois Butterfly Monitoring Network. And Doug recently made a presentation on, I don't see as many butterflies as I used to. Is this statement really correct? And the findings from the Illinois Butterfly Monitoring Network show an across-the-board drop in butterfly populations that dovetails with the research on the drop in insect populations around the world. Thanks for joining us, Doug Tarrant. Good to be here. Uh, Tell us a little something about the Illinois Butterfly Monitoring Network itself. Uh, You've been doing this since 1987. Yes, the network was founded in 1987. It's a citizen science program where everybody who participates in the program is assigned a place. And at this place, there is a specific walking route that is set up. And a minimum of six times each summer, each volunteer goes out, walks their walking route and counts and identifies all of the butterflies that they see within 20 feet of themselves as they're walking. And this is something um, you've done with a lot of people in the six-county area. You've got a huge data set here. We do. Across the state, We uh, this coming summer, we'll uh, cross the threshold of having 14,000 uh, distinct surveys in our database. Uh, for the study that we talked about recently, uh, we have over 9,000 surveys that went into that uh, subset of the database. And so if you – and people can do this themselves. Or if you go on the Illinois Butterfly Monitoring website, people can volunteer and do this citizen science. And this is really the only way we have of knowing 
uh, big drops in insect population, changes in insect population. This is the Germany study I referenced in the New York Times is a citizen-led deal. This is what this is how we get information. Right. One of the big advantages to citizen science as an approach to this sort of thing is that we can collect large volumes of data by uh, employing a lot of people or um, having a lot of volunteers, uh, over 100 uh, last year, and uh, have it go on for a very long period of time. If you, if you think about an academic study, a typical graduate student's uh, student lifespan is five to seven years. Uh, so let's get into some of the data that you found in your studies. Um, it, a drop uh, in butterflies, I mean, it sounds bad. It, it sounds like there is uh, something precipitously wrong. Can you tell us what, what kind of data you got? Uh, we We looked at all of the uh, data from the six-county region of the Chicago metropolitan area between 2000 and 2018. And over this period of time, our statistical modeling showed over 30% drop in overall butterfly abundance. This is just how many butterflies people were encountering as they did their survey walks without really referencing what species they were seeing. It was just everything. Now, I mean, so many people are concerned about monarch butterflies and in specific, and a lot of people are out planting milkweed and trying to boost the monarch, and we were hearing that monarch populations are going up a bit. Um, your data seems to say everything else is going down. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit paradoxical that the um, the monarchs had an extremely good year this year, but you look at butterflies overall in the Chicago area, and they've had a sequence of bad years. So, and you're, you've got uh, charts that show like six, seven years of declines in a row in Kane County and in Chicago and in different areas. Right. And the, uh, the, the Kane County chart, for example, was representative of what you would see if you did that type of analysis on the data of each of the six counties of the metropolitan area. You also pulled out data on um, – a particular butterfly, cabbage white, which I think people may not know the name, but they would know it if they saw it. It is the the most ubiquitous butterfly, a little white job with a dot in the middle of the, the wings. And uh, what did you find about cabbage white? Well, one of the reasons we looked at the cabbage white specifically is because it's the most abundant butterfly in our database. Uh, about 35% of all of the butterfly observations in the database are cabbage whites. And one of the things we were concerned about is this was the only species that is abundant enough to have its thumb on the scale. And if we were really just seeing a decline of cabbage whites, uh, we could have misinterpreted that to mean that everything was going down. When we segregated them out, we saw that the cabbage whites were declining. But when you looked at everything but the cabbage whites, that was also declining at about the same rate. So it doesn't seem like that we're just seeing a decline in cabbage whites. They're going along for the ride with everything else. All right. So, And you would think that cabbage whites, being the most ubiquitous, would be the healthiest and most adapted to this area and would maybe be okay. You really would think that for a couple of reasons. They're, they're actually an invasive species right. and they're an agricultural pest. They're, they're the little green worms you find in broccoli sometimes. That's the caterpillars of them. And so if there was a species that was going to be doing really, really well regionally, that would be the one I would have uh, suspected. 
All right. So they're all going down. And you also added in your presentation uh, some data on dragonflies. Um, what does the data on dragonflies say? Right. The Dragonfly data was pulled from a similar citizen science program called the Illinois Odinate Survey. And it goes back to 2003, and we did the same type of analysis and showed that their decline was actually even somewhat steeper, and they've gone down by uh, about 57 percent since 2003. And dragonflies are really different than butterflies. They're, they're not uh, – they can't possibly – be dying from the, I don't know what, the, the same thing. Well, they might both be susceptible to similar types of environmental pressures, but it's true. They are both taxonomically and ecologically very, very different from each other. I mean, butterflies are herbivores through their entire life and, and uh, dragonflies are predators through their entire life. All right. So, so when you add this up, this seems to meld with all the global data we're seeing. And um, can you say something about what we've seen from Germany and Puerto Rico and the studies there and what their their meaning is? Yeah, there have been a bunch of studies that have shown uh, precipitous declines in insects over roughly the same time frame. Uh, in Germany, uh, the study was looking at overall insect biomass. It was also a citizen science program. And uh, it, it showed uh, substantial declines over a similar, similar time frame. Puerto Rico is interesting because that is more ecologically different than a lot of the places that some of these other studies have done because it is both an island and it's tropical. And the groups that they were looking at there also were showing a decline. Uh, interestingly, the uh, Puerto Rican study was also showing declines in things that were predators of insects. So it's starting to ripple out. Yeah, so that's the the danger here is the ripple effect. I mean, birds, reptiles, all the other things that eat insects are declining with, right with their, 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 their food source. Right. That's actually one of the things that we're wondering about the dragonflies is that if they are going down faster than the butterflies at the moment, in part because of the same pressures, but in part because they're also losing food supply. All right. Um, so – this is like um, really bad news, and I guess it, why has got to be the question, and everyone wants to know, and everybody recognizes there's been habitat loss, and there's a lot of pesticides in a lot of places, and there is climate change. Um, what do you think's going on? Probably no one single thing. There are probably multiple things all kind of having an effect on what's happening. Uh, and of course, the data that we presented in Illinois says nothing at all about mechanism for these things, but uh, you know is, is very consistent with the types of patterns that have been being seen elsewhere. Uh, you know, there there are the usual array of suspects on this sort of thing: habitat loss, um, insecticides, that sort of thing. But uh, some of that is going to take some much more focused studies to really ferret out. And. The climate element seems to be a uh, a trump card that would answer the question, why is this happening everywhere? A climate is certainly something that needs to be looked at very carefully. The uh, Puerto Rican study actually included a climate element, and it did show a correlation with the declines that they were observing with uh, an increase in um, uh, average daily temperature maximum. All right. So um, – it, it's um, 
It's interesting. What do you think people can do about this? I mean, it seems like this is something that is uh, really out of control. Well, one of the things that people can do about it is uh, involves habitat. And you can make your yard more habitat friendly. You can um, work on various habitat restoration programs in various um, forest preserves and nature preserves around the area. Uh, you can plant resources um, uh, a lot of the insects that are doing badly are uh, herbivorous insects and uh, having host plants for caterpillars and nectar sources for things like adult butterflies is real important. Doug Terran is chief curator at the Chicago Academy of Sciences. We're talking about the loss in insect population around the world and the butterflies that he studies here. And with us is Citizens for Conservation, one of the organizations that is urgently acting to preserve this region's biodiversity. My friend Peggy Simonson is here. She is on the board of Citizens for Conservation and currently runs their uh, education programs. Good to see you, Peggy. Thanks for having me. Explain what Citizens for Conservation is doing because you've got um, – you're restoring land. You're teaching people. You're selling plants. You're doing the whole bit. Yeah. Yeah, Citizens for Conservation is a 49-year-old organization. Our, our mission is saving living space for living things. And we do that by restoration of ecologically valuable land. We acquire land in the greater Barrington area and, and have res- restored uh, thousands of acres. Um, we also have an education program because there's only so much land that we can acquire, but there's a lot of homeowners who have yards that that can be turned into better habitat. We really are a proponent of reducing the amount of turf grass, which doesn't support much uh, wildlife at all, and replacing it with native plants that are appropriate for the area. Uh, We have a program, in fact, called Habitat Corridors, which helps individual homeowner property owners uh, identify what get rid of the invasives if they have those on their land. Uh, an awful lot of buckthorn is existing in this area, and we're proponents of helping people get rid of that, but also uh, advise on what kinds of native plants would be good in their yard. I might say, though, that we only work in the greater Barrington area, to do, or, well, the northwest suburbs, really, for the for habitat corridors, but there's another group in, in Chicago called the Chicago Living Corridors, which is an umbrella group. Uh, it's chicagolivingcorridors.org that has a map on the website that shows all of the land that has been restored, but it also lists the other kinds of organizations like Citizens for Conservation that do have uh, uh, property visits like uh, in the Naperville area, for example, is the Conservation Foundation, which has a big program called conservation at home. So there are, there are other areas. But the point is that we're trying to get individuals to uh, pay attention to the habitat needs of the butterflies, but also of the other insects. And, and of course, the insects then support the birds. One of the things we've seen lately uh, is that a lot of people recognize that they need to be planting milkweed, because that's the only plant that the monarch butterflies lay their eggs on. Uh, but that's not enough because the, the you know when the when the the insects mature when they become butterflies they need nectar plants to feed on and particularly in the fall when the butterflies are getting ready for their long migration they need to have flowering plants to be able to fatten up if you will for for their for their trek 
and uh, so we're we're trying to help people recognize that they need the native plants through the whole growing season. And uh, I am a member of Citizens for Conservation. I take part in the Habitat Corridors program. I've got a sign in my yard and everything. I've got a lot of native plants out there. And it's enormous fun to see like the early plants come up. There's a lot of uh, ephemerals that pop up here in the spring. And those are important for butterflies and for all the pollinators out there. Mm-hmm. And then all the way through the fall, you've got to supply the food chain. And you'll see... In your yard, like I do, bees, butterflies, the whole pollinator universe uh, comes alive in your yard. That's right. And we particularly uh, focus on native plants because they, the, the insects and the butterflies all have evolved with them locally. And they can't get the same kind of nutrients out of uh, cultivars or non-native plants that they do out of the natives. And, for example, I, have, uh, I had some uh, hydrangeas, the Annabelle hydrangea, which is a cultivar, uh, in my yard before I moved there. And I planted some native the hydrangea arborescence, which is a native hydrangea right next to them. And I can look out and see bees and other pollinators swarming on the native plants, and they're just ignoring the non-native ones. When, when things get cultivated, when they become cultivars, native characteristics change, and they don't provide the same nutrients that the natives do. Now, Citizens for Conservation does an annual plant sale, and people can uh, check it out online. There's, uh, you can order, pre-order, and uh, so do lots of other places. There's plant sales, native plant sales all over, and people are gearing up for spring now, and this would be a good thing for people to do. Yeah, we have two resources on the website. If you either go to citizensforconservation.org, right at the top, there are two buttons. One says... Uh, native plant database, and there's hundreds of plants listed there that you can, you know, just use as a resource to see what plants are possible, and they show what kind of uh, growing conditions they need and how big they get and that kind of information. And the other is the plant sale itself, and there are photographs of what the plants look like and and the specific, uh, again, growing conditions of those. So even if you're you're not coming to the plant sale, you certainly have a resource there to be able to use. But but the, the advantage is uh, people can order the plants online, and they, we don't deliver, but they can be picked up at, at the Citizens for Conservation uh, plant sale, which is the first weekend in May, May 4th and 5th. And if people go to the chicagolivingcorridors.org, there's plant sales all over, and they've got them all listed That's right. There. There's a list of them all over the area. We, we've been uh, told that we're the largest plant sale in Illinois by some of our growers. That so. is how you won me over, because <laughs> I was going, I, I was having a fine time at the Hoffman Estates Garden Club sale. Um, they're very good. But you, you've got some bushes and trees that are not available there, and I, I so, so um, you won me over with all the, the variety. You've over 200 different uh, plants. And bushes and the whole bit. That's right. And we have uh, our, our plant sale director told me that that she has ordered uh, over two hundred species this year, and something like two thousand plants to sell. That's terrific. Doug, say something cool about butterflies and what they like to eat, other than a monarch, because we all know about the monarch <laughs> and the thing and the milkweed. But what what else is out there? Well, there's there's tons of stuff out there. Uh, there's a beautiful little butterfly called the pearl crescent, and the caterpillars feed on asters. And uh, asters are a g- great garden choice because they're also Light a nectar bloopers. source during that important monarch migration period. Mm-hmm. And um, there are uh, butterflies that feed on rare wetland plants. There's a beautiful butterfly called the Baltimore checker spot that feeds on a wetland plant called turtlehead. 
Um, one of the fascinating things about butterflies is that for the majority of species, the caterpillars feed on a very, very limited range of plants. And so um, there's a very close relationship between where these plants will grow and where the butterflies will live. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, if people want more information about the Illinois Butterfly Network here at bfly.org? bfly.org, that's correct. That's terrific. And if people want more information about the plant sale, they can go to... citizensforconservation.org. All right, that's terrific. And hopefully we'll get out there and we will boost biodiversity and make a difference for all the plants, all the animals, all the, all the things that need it. So many things need it. Um, they need us. Uh, thanks very much for joining us, Doug Tarrant from uh, the uh, chief curator at the Chicago Academy of Sciences. He founded the Illinois Butterfly Monitoring Network and Peggy Simonson, board member and past president of Citizens for Conservation. She does the education programs there now. Thanks for joining us and talking about um, everything. And I didn't even get to that. You guys collaborated on the release of the Smooth Green Snake in that's Barrington. Right. <laughs> that's and, right. and that's an awesome thing, too. Um, congratulations on that. And keep up the good work. Oh, thank you. Thank you. After the break, we'll have Global Notes, our look at international music with Catalina Maria Johnson, and we'll talk about the music of Venezuela. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald, and it's time for Global Notes, our look at international music with Catalina Maria Johnson, host of Vocalo Culture Writer. Great to see you. Great to see you, Jerome. Who are we hearing sing? We are hearing like the quintessential Venezuelan as we go to Venezuela today. Yes, the quintessential essential referent of Venezuelan music, Simón Díaz and really one of the most well-known worldwide Venezuelan musicians. You may not know it, but his music appears in Bamboleo and the Gypsy Kings. It's influenced musicians worldwide. And even though he was an extremely well-studied musician, it's really music from the land. And in fact, this song speaks of certain parts of the Venezuelan rural land and 
the beauty of the land and wanting to go back there. So many of his songs were workmen's and laborers, just kind of everyday people's songs. So he is, yes, quintessential Venezuela here. I was reading his uh, obituary in the New York Times from a few years ago, and it sounds like it's almost hard to sum up what he was to Venezuelan culture since he had a children's show, he acted, he was like Alan Lomax, he was a researcher into folkloric music. He was a, a lot of things at one time. <laughs> um, yeah, it was like the Ed Sullivan kind of figure. So yes, a very, very crucial figure for Venezuela and for Venezuelan music and the Venezuelan arts. I thought this was a good way to began a show on Venezuela's protest music, kind of the music that is now emerging in the last few years from Venezuela. Now, Simon Diaz never did protest music himself. He always stayed apolitical. But the people we're talking about now are not apolitical. They are reacting to things that are happening in Venezuela. Very true, very true. Now, not necessarily all of the music that we'll play, these aren't necessarily protest groups. All of them are protest bands or protest musicians. But simply, as with much art in Latin America, the distinction between the political and the artistic, those boundaries are almost always blurred. There's very little art that is just sort of art in the luxurious kind of often U.S. sense, just for art's sake. There's often a message, a subtext. And, for example, this next musician, Betsaida Machado and her band La Barranda del Clavo, they're from about an hour away from Caracas, and it is a fascinating area and a fascinating village because that music and the musicians and this village were actually originally founded by escaped enslaved persons. And at the time, an hour away from Caracas was a long ways away, so kind of hidden in the jungle. And out of their music, which is, again, folks, uh, roots music, they're not a protest band, but they've always sung about everyday life. That's the music, the rituals, the celebrations, the births, the deaths, everyday life. And this is Betsaida Machada and the Parranda del Clavo talking about la situación, the situation. Really powerful singing there and powerful beat. Essentially, I was reading that they sing like newspapers, like newspaper editorials. They sing the news in their culture. 
Definitely. And again, this is Betsaida Machada and the Barranda del Clavo, a large ensemble from this town, about an hour away from Caracas. And it's percussion instruments and vocals and dancing, too. And this song, La Situación, the refrain is, La Situación nos está volviendo loco. It's making us crazy, the situation. And then there's a list of all the things you can't find. You can't find food. You can't find rice. You can't find diapers. It's like I'm going to the market and there's nothing there. And that sort of the desperation of at one point of parents who, you know, can't feed their children. So it is very much the uh, troubadour news of the situation in Venezuela. We're talking about Venezuelan music today on Global Notes with Catalina Maria Johnson. And next we're going to an artist. This band is seeing a lot of trouble and they're living in exile in Mexico now. Uh, La Vida Boheme. Yeah, La Vida Boheme. They are kind of alt-indie punk rockers from Venezuela, and their music started to really be shared around the time post-Chavez's death, and many of their songs became kind of anthems, um, were being taken to the streets, and then in the next few years, they really started to suffer in terms of the violent situation. Um, Their booking agent was murdered, and several other staff members were kidnapped, and um, they continued to make music but relocated to Mexico about a year or two ago in response to the situation. And this is some of their recent music, which is actually a very personal story of kind of a young child facing a violent situation in a neighborhood, but it speaks to this instability and the inseguridad, the insecurity in Venezuela. Avivaron el fuego y ya no puedo respirar tantos años ciego y ahora que estoy aquí me pregunto te molesta si canto te molesta si canto te molesta si canto te molesta si canto Atrapado cual minero en San José Años malos, años buenos Sin guardia y and that's La Vida Boheme and their song Vose and Catalina. What were they talking about there? Well, the video is actually a story of a young child facing a very violent situation. But if you read the words, they're very interesting because the refrain is, Te molesta si canto, te molesta si canto. Does it bother you if I sing? Does it bother you if I sing? Does it bother you if I sing? There's lines about being blind and being in a cul-de-sac and there being no way out. We're talking about some of the Venezuelan music and Venezuela's in the news constantly and how musicians and cultural people are reacting. And the next song we have is a Venezuelan We Are the World type of project that people should check out. It's really pretty interesting. Yeah, this is not actually uh, recorded. This is a, a YouTube video. But it's fascinating because it is a montage with musicians, Venezuelan musicians, in different situations, in different sites, but led 
directed by a, a musician in Caracas, in Venezuela, and directed. And it's a long-time famous kind of protest song from maybe the 90s by the Panamanian Ruben Blades, Ruben Blades, and the lyrics are so incisive and they're so perfect. And the title of the song is, It is Forbidden to Forget. It is Forbidden to Forget. And the reason for that is that there's this long list of things that are forbidden. It's forbidden to think, forbidden to be educated. All science is forbidden except for the military sciences. So there's a long list of things that are being forbidden in this land. And the refrain is, that's why you must remember it is forbidden to forget, kind of that the only saving grace will be to remember what has happened. So this is Prohibido Olvidar. It's a classic salsa, and it's extremely danceable, but the words are really powerful. Prohibieron ir a la escuela e ir a la universidad Prohibieron las garantías y el fin constitucional Prohibieron todas las ciencias Excepto la militar Prohibiendo el derecho a queja Prohibieron el preguntar Hoy te sugiero mi hermano Pa' que no vuelva a pasar Prohibido olvidar And there's the song, and I saw it translated once as Forgetting Venezuela is Forbidden. Yeah, that's the, it was retitled as that, exactly. Prohibido Olvidar Venezuela. This is from the summer of 2017, but over 30 Venezuelan musicians convened by trombonist Josir Cordova. And this was part of the protests in Venezuela. We're talking about Venezuelan music today on Global Notes with Catalina Maria Johnson. Venezuela's always in the news. It's time to hear some of what's going on culturally with the music. And the next band we are going to, I never think about um, ska bands coming from Venezuela, <laughs> but this is a well-established ska band, and everything I listen to sounds terrific. You'd be surprised. You know, Chicago has a Latin ska band. Ska is huge in Latin America, as is like our reggae ska combinations. So this is a band, Desorden Público, that's been around for quite some time, and in fact, at one of their earliest albums, uh, Desorden Público means public disorder, um, one of their uh, first albums became a series of anthems, protest anthems, several decades ago. And, of course, in the current climate, they're actually redoing many of those songs. They're creating a whole album that is recreating those protest songs, Desorden Público. And I chose this song because it has some hope. It offers some hope. It's Bailando Sobre Las Ruinas, and it's Dancing Upon the Ruins. But it's saying, we will, we will someday, you know. It's that literally this will pass, better times should come, and we'll be dancing upon these ruins. Sana 
sesiones colectivas, terapia intensiva, un reencuentro bien arriba, shocks eléctricos que sacudan cielos e infiernos, hilo y aguja para coser bailando el tiempo, mejor retomar el foco, la cadencia, el ritmo y la rima, y así renovar el ciclo. Bailando sobre las ruinas, verás bailando sobre las ruinas, me verás bailando sobre las ruinas, me verás bailando sobre las ruinas, una resurrección, una nueva inspiración. There's the band Public Disorder, and they're dancing upon the ruins of the problems of Venezuela. That's a great way to end it, Catalina. Well, part of that song also says, become the change you want to be, and I will see you dancing upon the ruins. That's a great sentiment. And Catalina Maria Johnson, thanks for another great edition of Global Notes, this time on Venezuela and Venezuelan music. Thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot, Jerome. Always a pleasure to be here. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk about climate change. Greta Thunberg's school strike for climate is making a global push for action on climate change. There are 1,300 children strikes in cities around the world. A hundred countries are taking part. It's coming up on Friday, and we'll talk with some of the young people from Illinois who have organized the strike in Federal Plaza that is coming to Federal Plaza on Friday. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. We'll also get a Brexit update with Ed Luce from the Financial Times. Hope you can join us tomorrow. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Jenny Friedland and Ashish Valentine for production assistance. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Everybody's-